Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Corey Noble and Nick Oliveri, co-founders of Impact Snacks. Impact Snacks is a delicious plant-based superfood that's completely changing what it means to be both highly nutritious and sustainable. On the nutritious side, they use plant-based ingredients that are amazing for your body, your mind, and your gut. And on the sustainability side, they have completely rethought what it takes to bring a bar of this nature to life. Everything from how the ingredients are sourced, how the bar itself is made, and then the packaging that's used to encase the product. And this last point is super interesting because as you'll hear in the interview, the packaging is fully biodegradable, meaning that unlike other single-use plastics that get thrown away and then end up in landfill, this one can actually be eaten. It's insane. And in the interview, Corey, Nick, and I will discuss what exactly inspired the idea for Impact Snacks, a crash course on creating the product and the different ingredients that are inside of it, their big breakthrough on packaging that is biodegradable and edible, launching a successful Kickstarter and finding really good opportunities to amplify their message through platforms like LinkedIn and TikTok. And lastly, the different ideas that are rotting away in our idea graveyards. Everyone, this is one of the most enjoyable conversations that I've had. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Corey Noble and Nick Oliveri, co-founders of Impact Snacks. Nick and Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for having us. Excited to be here. Yeah, really appreciate you taking the time. So guys, let's start with the basics. What is Impact Snacks? Impact Snacks is our approach to changing the way we look at single-use products. We are trying to be a part of the solution to the 1 billion snacks consumed every single day by Americans, most of which end up in a landfill. We do this via plant-based, ethical sourced ingredients, home compostable packaging, and a truly carbon negative supply chain. Nice. Yeah. Before we get into how Impact Snacks manifests today, what product number one is, I want to zoom out for a second because both of you guys have really interesting backgrounds. So if we rewind, what is both of your, what's like the quick brief on your backgrounds? And then what was ultimately the eureka moment for Impact Snacks? Yeah, very good question. It's a funny story. Corey and I are from the same hometown. We met in sixth grade in band class where we basically, we shared a mutual hatred for the trumpet. It's just a dirty, <laughs> it's just a dirty instrument. We thought so. We tried to get out of it all the time. Corey says that was our first startup is trying to figure out how to get out of playing the trumpet. Wasn't very successful, but yeah. And then so we basically did like a ton of ventures from sixth grade, seventh grade, middle school and onward throughout high school. And so it would be, like I said, so it would be like mobile games, but it would jump around. We made like a rudimentary form of a cryptocurrency intermediary like processor, clothing lines, global digital marketplaces for, and I don't know how into the secondary sneaker sales market you're in, but we actually co-owned the Yeezy Marketplace, which is the fastest growing and one of the largest, if not the largest, I guess, third party community sales marketplace on Facebook for Yeezy sneaker sales. <clears throat> and I think a lot of other uh, luxury sneaker sales as well. So we were 
going about doing that just (laughs) super niche but it's such a rampant base which i was surprised about as i was picking up crazy traction but wait i gotta jump in there (laughs) let's unpack the Yeezy marketplace. So I see on your LinkedIn, it's the world's second largest decentralized sneaker trading platform. How the hell do you guys start there? Are you guys big sneaker heads? What, what inspired both of you to, to go after that? Yeah, yeah. So I used to be super into sneakers and I, w- I would never be the one that was waiting or sleeping overnight outside like a footlocker to get the pairs in the morning you know, when they release <laughs> before they sell out in, in like a heartbeat. Um, uh-huh. So I would always go to different Facebook groups. There's one called like Boston Sneakerheads, like Lawrence Sneakerheads, stuff like that in our area. And there's a bunch of like local sneaker groups and you could just post your size, what you want, and you'd start a bidding war in the comments with, with people that had bought the shoes. It was a cool approach to, to getting your hands on some kicks that, that had sold out the day before. And the beauty of it was that you didn't have to pay StockX or Goat or any of those other consignment stores commission. In early on in high school, we... Basically, we spent only $400 to get the name Yeezy Marketplace. And over time, up until last winter, it grew completely organically to about 120,000 members in over 100 different countries. What? So, I mean, yeah, so you had people in there that were just casual sneakerheads like me that I, I would have a few pairs. And I didn't have a crazy collection or anything like that. But then you'd have some people that this is their full-time job. And, and they would be selling 20, 30, 40 pairs a week. And some of these people were making two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year. And we allowed them to do it in a way that they wouldn't have to pay any third party. I believe we added value. It was a cool group. Sold it last winter, but had a lot of fun. Wait, guys, this is awesome. So was it living on top of Facebook as a standalone group? Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Yeah, we, that we is kinda... super cool. Thank you, man. Yeah, it's kind of some companies, they can just build off of another company's infrastructure. And, you know, we didn't really start it with, we didn't know anything about like <laughs> how to build a company at the time. It was just like, this is like a cool thing that we could do on the internet. And and Facebook groups are, I, I still think that they're, it's an untapped opportunity for a lot of different brands. But yeah, it was a closed group. You had to request to invite to join. At a certain point, we started charging a dollar just to join. That was it. We didn't run ads uh, until literally the last year that we ran it either. So it was definitely tricky to try to monetize it, but yeah, all the infrastructure was already there. Guys, this is brilliant. I remember I listened to another pod with a guy named Greg Eisenberg. He's like big in consumer social. And he he has this thesis around the unbundling of Reddit where you find the most kind of devout, passionate subreddits and use that as a signal for creating purpose-built communities and whatever that entails, right? Whether it's a Facebook group, it's a standalone app. This is genius. This fits right inside of that thesis. So you guys sell that. And then what happens next? Do you have the eureka moment while you guys are operating easy? What what happens and how can we connect the dots to impact snacks? Yeah, yeah, for sure. This was probably not the, the greatest thing, but hey, it worked out. But we, we ran like a lot of these ventures at the same time. Maybe that was just because uh, a lot of them were smaller scale. A lot of them just ran themselves using Marketplace in a lot of ways. But the first iteration of, of what is now Impact Snacks was called GeoProtein. And that was started our summer going into our junior year of high school. So around the same time we were running it. And, and yeah, we really started focusing on making clean nutrition, sustainable nutrition. We didn't make uh, products with more than five ingredients. And it was a bunch of small batch stuff. 
some stuff made to order, just friends and family. Entered into a few different high school business competitions. I don't know if DECA. Um, I don't know. I, I have my qualms with DECA. I, I, I think their mission's great. <laughs> I think there's uh-huh. some stuff to improve. But anyways, it, it gave us the first opportunity to really like pitch to, to angels and stuff like that. And we ended up doing fairly well somehow. And then from there, that was when we're like, all right, we want to take this to the next level. And when we went to college together, we started realizing like the inherent contradiction that was like, how are we making sustainable nutrition when I'm looking at like a case of PBFY plastic stand-up mailers, like a couple thousand of them um, that are going to contribute to the climate crisis and the plastic crisis and all this bad stuff. You can't promote individual longevity, killing the planet. Inherent contradiction. So that's when we applied the philosophy that we had for, for sustainable nutrition to the broader supply chain. And that's how Impact Snacks came about. Interesting. Okay. So let, let me unpack that a little bit further because I think one of the the things that has been a recurring theme across our interviews here is to what extent people lean into sustainability as the selling point versus more of a sub-feature that people lean into as a, hey, you're going to get a protein bar. You're going to get this thing anyway. Why not also choose the option that defaults to planet friendly. So when you guys were initially thinking of the idea, did you start with the criteria that it has to have some baked in sustainability philosophy or did you guys experience something, read something that say, hey, we can't do this without building in sustainability? When did that become a part of the whole entire pie. I think the the way I look at it is <clears throat> we can, and, and I think we will get granular with all the specs and all the things we're doing that are super unique and super cool and that we'd love every other company, mm-hmm. no matter their industry and whatever else to adopt. But the most important thing here is Everything we do springs from our core principles, if that makes any sense. So we, the core principles of, okay, we can't contribute to the the single-use plastic crisis. We just refuse to, we won't. Okay, from there, we find a solution, no matter what. And so I think it's it's just from there, because... We didn't set out one day to say, okay, like we're going to use a plant, cellulose based of soy or, or some sort of a starch or whatever else or a fiber for the wrapper. We just said, okay, this is the goal. And no matter what, we're not going to contribute to this. this is the goal. We want to be carbon negative. We want to be a net positive for the environment. We'll figure out how to be LCA compliant and figure out how to get these carbon accountants um, if that's even the route. So hopefully that yeah. makes if sense I might, if, Yeah, if I might add to that. It wasn't like this overnight shift because honestly, we're still learning because I think we've all kind of been conditioned to look at a lot of, especially like environmental, like sustainability issues is like normal. Plastic is like a great example. Like if you go to Dunkin' Donuts, get a nice coffee, um, like there's no avoiding it. You could bring a reusable cup, but there's so many little things in our everyday lives that are an unfortunate truth. It doesn't mean you're a good mm-hmm. or bad person. It's just the way our economy is built right now. And so it was just a really like long learning process where, like Nick said, like the first, I think the first big thing was like plastic. And then we started looking into all the different ways that we could 
approach compostable packaging. And then, and then we looked into kind of carbon heavy supply chains. And then we learned about the, the super crazy world about, you know, of carbon accounting. Um, and it was just like one layer at a time, like all coming together. And yeah, it, it took us a while. It, it took us a while and, and a lot of open, honest conversations about what we're really trying to do. Because I remember times we couldn't find a compostable packaging solution for us to work with our bar because our bar was oily and it would biodegrade everything we wanted to use from the inside out. And we could have easily just used recycled you know, packaging, but 91% of all plastic that can be recycled hasn't been recycled. So it was just, a, it couldn't happen. So wow. long, long learning process. But. And I was telling Nick before we, we kicked off, this is how I discovered you guys. I'm scrolling through LinkedIn and I see this handsome looking fella just biting the entire <laughs> wrapper of a bar. Dude, what are you doing? So maybe for the listeners who haven't seen the Impact Snacks bars yet, can you just quickly define what is the Impact Snack? What is it made of? What is the bar made of? How is it different from what exists? And then maybe just zoom out a little bit more. What is the packaging and how – does that distinguish itself from the status quo today? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So everyday snacking, we all love it. The average American has four snacks a day. He said over a billion of those end up in, in a landfill. And, and with that, most uh, snacks don't have ethically sourced plant-based ingredients. And in, even if they do, sometimes the ingredients aren't as impactful as they can be. So nutritionally, our snacks are, in our opinion, superior because we have a very holistic approach to nutrition. After doing some stuff with geoprotein and reevaluating the direction uh, you know, that, that we were going in, we wanted to move away from just the protein world because we feel like too many supplements and nutrition companies, even like fitness influencers, like exclusively promote protein, almost like your muscles are the only, the only function that matters in your body, that, that no other organ functions are worth treating. So we wanted to make a, a bar that was for mind, body, and gut that can equally enhance all organ functions from, from gut to heart, to brain, to eyes, everything. So that's the nutrition of it. We use adaptogens like lion's mane, maca root, other superfoods like kale. You know, we use a prebiotic fiber. But then when you go into the, sustain, the sustainability side of things, we have a biocellulose uh, wrapper that's derived from soy. Like face masks that people get, uh, you can get them at like CVS. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, it's very similar to that. And it's completely safe, it's edible. <laughs> yeah, as we've eaten it. Uh, it's a little chewy, but it's it's entirely safe, <laughs> which is the important thing. Yeah, and, and, and then from there, we, we did a bunch of early legwork with our ingredients, with the packaging to make sure from day one, our carbon footprint was as low as it can be. And then we have uh, a team of carbon accountants that tracks our footprint from farm to customer's doorstep. And they found that our per product footprint was about 0.38 pounds per bar. Um, this is already like an order of magnitude less than the average competitor, again, because of that early legwork we did to make sure that we were creating a truly sustainable product. But then from there, we know that carbon accounting is not where it needs to be. It's mm -hmm. the tech's not there. Uh, it's getting there quickly, but we know that there's an error margin. Uh, and But even if that error margin is 10, 20, 30, 40%, it's too hard to tell. So we decided to reclaim 250% of our per product's carbon footprint, no matter what to truly prove that like we're not doing this for like a marketing gig like this is for real <laughs> we're actually trying to create a carbon negative supply chain um, and the way we reclaim carbon it's a multi-pronged approach um, meaning we one remove existing carbon from the atmosphere and, and two prevent uh, future carbon from being created 
Yeah, and we, we remove existing carbon by reforesting areas near the equator. We've planted over 53,000 trees in the past two weeks, and we prevent new carbon from being made by funding the development of green energy projects in rural, dirty grid communities. The electrical grid is uh, you know, no, notorious for contributing to the carbon crisis. And, and yeah, by creating solar income, so renewable energy income, it actually can pay for the offsets over time. So I think it's a clever long-term business model as well. We'll see. It's working so far, but. When I look at your backgrounds, I don't see anything that speaks to uh, technical training in chemistry or biology. How did you, you come up with this brilliant packaging solution? How does that work? Do you guys find a contract manufacturer who has the tooling capabilities is this a specific type of manufacturer that says, you know what, we're going to help enable companies with these specific criteria or ideas in mind? How do you actually take this from zero to one? Because it's, I, I have not seen anything like this in the industry before. Thanks. And I'll, I'll let Nick answer what our future plans are with bioplastics and an acquisition that we're really excited to hopefully make in the near future. But we're not like chemical researchers. We don't have uh, backgrounds in, in biology, synthetic biology, whatever. And with that, we also didn't have any money for lab space, obviously. So what we had to do was find uh, a really, really inventive team that basically had a film but didn't have a way to productize it. And we're basically a very early use case for a pretty innovative film that we're talking about. And wow. But, but that's not just, hey, like, we're going to throw your wrapper on our bar. It's like we had to engineer our bar for the wrapper. So just as an example of that, like, we, we had an oily bar. We had almond butter. So that would biodegrade the bar from the inside out, and it would cut your shelf life to, down to nothing. So what we did to combat this was uh, we actually had a chocolate coating uh, that we designed with our food scientists down in Youngstown, Ohio, to, to basically cover the bar. So it, so it just looks like a chocolate coating, but it actually serves as like an organic second wrapper of sorts that prevents the oil from the batter on the inside of the bar from leaking outward. There's a bunch of little things that you can do, and it just adds a different texture and taste. It makes the, the bars taste better too. So mm -hmm. just a, a ton of trial and error. And yeah, engineering the bar for the wrapper instead of vice versa, because tons of different companies are doing cool stuff for material science and all that. But uh-huh. Really hard to mold it to existing products. But yeah, Nick, do you want to talk about the company that probably has to be nameless right now? But <laughs> <laughs> we are looking to further vertically integrate. And yeah, so I what Corey was saying is our partners are great and we've had to sift through plenty of third party partners to basically enable us to happen. Lots of testing, lots of pushing, lots of everything else getting into the weeds big time, but we're looking to vertically integrate so we can, you know, prevent that and also go forward with IP under our arms and a whole mm -hmm. lot of other things that'll just make it easier to move around. And yeah, so we're looking at a material that's a lot like ours to, to protect in the form of a merger. So very excited for that. More to come there. And I'm sure it may be announced um, soon, but yeah, wow. can't, yeah, can't get too into there. But, uh, but yeah, that's super exciting. It's, it's, it's material much. Yep. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say it's material much like our own, but the important thing for us is 
getting vertically integrated because, and I know you said you wanted to go into the long-term vision, but here is the important thing right now. This is like the end all be all for us. It's we're proving something on two points to consumers. We're proving that sustainability, wholesome purchases, you don't have to sacrifice anything. You don't have to sacrifice extra time, extra effort, extra searching or extra money. This is only going to become more normalized. To mm-hmm. businesses, to other businesses, whether they're D2C food brands in our space or even like super disparate, we're proving, look, you don't have to break the bank. You don't have to cut into your margins really heavily to be sustainable and to be that wholesome purchase. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're trying to do there. I, I got to say, just to quickly add, you, you look at how much the DTC playbook has evolved over the last decade it used to be super hard to sell things online. So the fact that you could do that was already a pretty substantial moat. And at this point, it's table stakes. Just being able to launch a brand is pretty easy. So some of the newer entrants that, in my opinion, are really well-suited to thrive and then position themselves for a really good outcome are those who vertically integrate. You look at Haas in the low-alk, non-alk BEVs category. They own the entire chain, like from production through fulfillment, et cetera. And so here, I got to say, this is exactly how I think any founder that's exploring CPG more broadly, but definitely in food and BEV, what a great way to set you guys up for success. And then I think longer term, if I'm a larger CPG, like this is a massive amount of value add, not just the revenue add, but it, if you guys are able to own the IP, that's a game changer for the industry. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. For sure. I think um, the IP is, you're absolutely right. It's the process of, of becoming sustainable and a way that still creates economic value, I think that's almost more powerful than just having a fast-moving consumer good that people like. It's And, and that's absolutely what we're all about. So I appreciate the insights there. And real quick, about House, have you tried them? I see their ads all the time, and, and I'm tempted every time to try it. But. So I have, and maybe I'm the odd one out. I, it, it wasn't for me. But I also, I don't like alcohol. And, and I will caveat that by saying there is a few drinks that I'll enjoy. Um, like I, I love me some claws. I love punch <laughs> pops, which I'm a part owner in. But really, if it's not like a quasi seltzer or f- like fruity low ABV, I don't know. It ain't for me. <laughs> dude, dude, uh, I'm the same exact way. And I can attest yeah. to that. Uh, yeah. All right. No so guys, let's, here. <laughs> <laughs> let's segue to the Kickstarter. Because again, it was after I discovered the post of Nick eating the wrapper, <laughs> obviously there was a call to action. It might've been in that post or a different one. And I'm looking in now, you guys have blown past your funding goal. You're almost at 200% funded. You still got two weeks left. So talk to me about launching the Kickstarter. Did you guys put a lot of thought into trying to de-risk up front, like maybe getting a bunch of backers to put up 
5K, 10K. What was the prep for the Kickstarter launch? And then what has it been like since green lighting or clicking go on the project? We're not unique in this case, obviously, but it, you know, coronavirus definitely threw us a curveball. Part of the rationale for going to the Kickstarter was to help us offset some of the costs um, associated mm-hmm. with having just to you know delay launch for so long. But but yeah, I mean, we probably put six, eight weeks, a good six, eight weeks of time into building it, um, and and mm-hmm. and we had a few things in mind as we were going about it. So one, we wanted to, we knew that we could manufacture pretty much right away which is unique for Kickstarter. A lot of times it's, hey, this is this cool idea. Here's a prototype. Help me get it to you know, the manufacturer. In this case, it, it's more of a pre-order and allowing us to create new flavors and all that stuff. We wanted to not only have or identify a product market fit on, on Kickstarter, which is going to be hopefully one of our, our most like hardcore bases ever, because it means they really are, are with the mission, but it allows us to stress test our supply chain for for. A whole month while the campaign goes, you don't have to ship till the end of the campaign. It allows us, yeah, to, to test the fulfillment center, to test the manufacturing facility, which we visited less than a week into the Kickstarter. So it just gave us a lot of time to work out any sort of kinks at all that were that were in the rope. And and yeah, that the mm-hmm. strategy from day one, just in terms of like eyeballs and driving backers, was that we wanted to let the world know that a better option was out there. As cliche as that sounds, <laughs> our entire peer group. Huge exaggeration, but we see a lot of people in our peer group, and I'm sure you can say the same, constantly posting to their Instagram stories or sharing things on Facebook, advocating for change and, and demanding that brands do better and highlighting things like the the, the the plastic island in the Pacific that's the size of Texas. All these really bad things that we're trying to, to help solve. So our philosophy was that if we could let as many people know on day one of the Kickstarter that a better option is finally out there, that all those people that had been posting could hopefully hop over and put their money where their mouth is uh, in the nicest way possible. So we had tons of people sharing our stuff uh, on Instagram stories. We had a cool engagement with uh, a company called Better that does some cool stuff with Tumblr. We, we did some interesting stuff with, with TikTok. And, but yeah, I think the most successful thing was actually just compiling a list of like thousands of people, everyone we've known since elementary school and like everyone that like our parents know and all that stuff and all of our friends and their parents and and our entire network and the networks of our network and like basically just sending them all personalized messages, which was hell and took so long. But that gave us that early boost, like 5K, 10K that allowed us to be 25% funded in like 10 minutes. That initial boost, I guess it's like organic-ish, is really hard to maintain. It gave us the necessary boost that we needed early on to build up some significant traction. And we didn't really do any paid stuff. We We explored it, but the ROI wasn't there. There's still a ton of people that one think Kickstarter is a scam because a company's like coolest pooler. Some people just don't want to go through the process of making an account. Some people think it's like investing, not a pre-order, which is poses there's a bunch of different challenges. But and then may, maybe a, not a fatal flaw on our end, but one thing we might not have wanted to do is, like I said, less than a week in, we showed pictures from our manufacturing run. So we have a huge amount of people, especially on TikTok, saying oh, I'm just going to buy when you go live on your website in two weeks when the campaign ends <laughs> mm-hmm. or whenever it was. So um, sorry if that was all over the place, but different challenges, uh, different strategies, but personalized messages just win, or at least one in our case. Mm-hmm. Nick, anything I missed there? I think um, I want to go to the 
TikTok because, yeah, personal network's huge, just grinding it out, getting the messages out there, and really just whoever needs to hear this has heard it by now, at least in our immediate circle and community. But going to TikTok and not just, you know, that video of me eating the wrapper or or some of our even larger posts than that, more like we found, and and I'm just feeling right now that we're on TikTok, we're tapping into something that's not quite... It's not quite conventional in like the demographic sense and, oh, like segmented, geographic, socioeconomic, how old are they, race, gender. TikTok, clearly Gen Z. But aside from that, we we blew up and we're surpassing a lot of other and not in a bad way, not even to be competitive, but we're having ridiculous success on TikTok because of so many people just rampantly believing in our mission. And I feel like there's been a thirst for this that all we've needed to do is just get it out there. We've laid in the groundwork for years now, getting to this point, and it's permeating this public unconscious, if you will. And it's just, it's really cool to see. It's just kind of a tipping point, and we lit a match, and yeah, hopefully we just continue to to resonate. That's all. Man, I got to say, despite all of the attention TikTok gets, it, it is... I think at the moment, one of the most underpriced attention arbitrages across social. We, we did the same thing for Incoherent, the game, right around when we launched. And in the same way, it was by far outperforming any organic or paid channel we were trying to exploit. Like the... If the product itself or the ethos of the product resonates, man, the tailwinds are just insane. But I also – I will say that and I noticed this, Corey, with your posts on LinkedIn. I, I feel like you guys have tapped into something on LinkedIn as well and it's not typically a platform that I, I spend too much time thinking about. But – I think you've struck a chord there as well. Something is working. Have you found LinkedIn as a viable referral source or way to drive traffic to the Kickstarter? Maybe it's just me and I'm seeing your name pop up every time I open it. (laughs) But is is LinkedIn interesting to you or is this just like another thing that you haven't – that you like to lean into your arsenal kind of as needed? Yeah. So LinkedIn, I'm going to be – completely honest here. Like I thought LinkedIn was the most boring thing ever, like up until a few months ago. And I know I had, I knew I had to have it. They have a crazy moat just in that if you want to be in the professional world, you need a LinkedIn pretty much. But that that's all it ever was to me. I used it for some cold outreach, but I started seeing few LinkedIn influencers, even sounds weird to say, but some like some pretty cool people on LinkedIn, like Ryan Betancourt uh, over at Wild Earth, Taylor Offer, Pete. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I saw these people building these, these pretty awesome personal brands. And this was a few months ago, and, and I saw them posting some content. They were getting like a million impressions, like it was organic. And, and what they were doing was either just sharing, like, they were either just sharing what they were interested in. It didn't seem like artificial, like a lot of stuff I'm seeing on Instagram now. It was just like literally what they're interested in or cool stuff that their company has done. Like updates, but in a little bit of a more engaging way, like Ryan Betancourt. Uh, like we ate the wrapper, he ate their dog food to prove that it's truly safe. So That's um, I was like, there has to be an opportunity here. And yeah, I just started trying to put out content. And now the other day I hit 8,000 followers. Um, super pumped. Um, 
super thankful to, to everyone that for some reason thinks that my content is somewhat engaging. But <laughs> but yeah, I, I, now I think it's probably the most powerful social presence that I personally have, by far more powerful than my Instagram. And probably if I had to guess, I'd have to, I don't have the, the hard numbers to back this up, but if I had to guess, so over 50% of my recent connections that I've made just for the business as a whole that are actually like turning into something tangible or have all come from LinkedIn. And most of them have actually reached out to me just because it's like gravity. Like you build up this brand, people see you and LinkedIn's algorithm is pretty cool. And uh, that mm-hmm. I think it allows for a lot of visibility. LinkedIn's at a content deficit, just like TikTok. And, and yeah, if, if you have something interesting to say, I think it's super, dare I say, easy to build following there now. And and yeah, and the, the first like big thing we did on LinkedIn was Taylor Offer. I, I think you, you, you've seen him, you know him maybe. Oh um, yeah, we both went to, to UMass together. Nice, yeah. So like I, I had hit him up like 20 times and I'm just like, dude, I know he like wins the internet. That's his thing. He, uh-huh. he's, he's pretty brilliant with that. So I was like, I have some ideas. I want to do this viral campaign, blah, blah, blah. And he didn't get back to me. And finally he did. And I said, hey, if you just shout out our Kickstarter, I'll plant a tree for every like that you get. Something that I've seen happen on uh, Instagram, but it's exhausted on Instagram at this point, but I've never seen it on LinkedIn. And that thing blew up. And within the first like like two days, it had like a quarter million impressions. And I, I have wow. no idea what it's at now, but we planted over 3,000 trees, which is, it, it was a few hundred dollars, but we, we got a couple thousand from that, from the Kickstarter. So wow. um, that's when I was like, okay, not only can LinkedIn actually drive connections to me, whether it be investors or fellow startup uh, founders or operators, like it's actually going to drive tangible ROI to the business. And that's when your personal network starts overflowing into your business. And it's definitely like slow, but it's steady. And and I think it's growing exponentially. I'm excited to pursue it. I think it's going to be my go-to platform for sure now. Love it. All right, guys, I want to zoom out to the industry at large before we get to the back of the interview. And it's something that I love asking our guests, which is if we take a step back and we look at some of the other really cool projects, whether research or startups in nature that are going on either in your category specifically or in climate more broadly, what are one or two that you'd like to give a shout out to? Either they're super interesting ambitious, wacky, anything's on the table now. If you guys want to just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what's been intriguing you. What did you see that you think is worth sharing with our community? Cool. I can give one and then Nick can give one maybe, if that works. Yeah, perfect. Cool. So probably, I don't want to say my favorite company right now. I don't play favorites like that, but a company called Nelumbo, N-E-L-U-M-B-O which is, it's Latin for, it's the lotus flower. And they basically, Liam Berryman is the founder and CEO, brilliant guy. And they use nanostructured surfaces to make more efficient cooling systems. That's what they're doing right now. They've done Mm -hmm. a few things in the past, I think on the B2B side, but they're basically trying to change the way residential cooling systems work. And I'm I'm sure commercial as well, but. Wow. Cooling is incredibly damaging to the environment. And they just have such an innovative approach. Liam Berryman's a Teal fellow. He dropped out of school to do this. And it's they're doing some fascinating stuff. Most of it goes way over my head, but whenever he talks, I listen. He's brilliant. <laughs> and he's, he's going to be 
one of the founders that kind of really defines like entrepreneurship for our generation, for, for sure. Wow. Hey, if you know him or hey, if you listen to this and you have a connection to him anyway, I would love to have him on the show. We've had, I think, only one company on Saluna that is explicitly focused on alternative means of energy generation, which might also include heating, cooling. This sounds wacky as hell. I would love to have him on. So, hey, anyone out there, I would gladly accept an introduction. Um, Got you. I'll, uh, I'll hit him up right now. I, I actually feel bad. I, I made an intro the other day um, uh-huh. to some intern that's, that's doing a bunch of cool research on the circular economy for a VC firm in London. And I kind of I, I forgot to do the double opt-in <laughs> intro. And so I, I need to get Classic. better with that. But I will do my best to make that intro. I'm sure, I'm sure he'd love to talk to you. But cool, he's also man. super busy. so we'll, we'll For it. sure. Nick, what about you, man? What do you got? Yeah, it's really hard for me to zero in on one company. And I guess if you zoom out to the industry at large, to me, I'm just always cheering on little steps, little baby steps, whether it's in materials or whether it's in supply chain. But I I guess a few cool ones. So vertical farming, too, is one of my favorites. That's one of my most, I guess... That's like my where a lot of my hope flies because it's okay. You look at a population density, it, you can farm in uh, densely populated urban areas. So, any company, and some names are escaping me. Sorry, I'm not great with names or even names of companies. No but problem. Vertical farming is, I think, the eighth wonder of the world in a lot of ways. It can save so much of what we're trying to do and a lot of the stresses of this kind of postmodern society. And yeah, there are, there is a lot of exodus right now out of urban centers, but still we got a lot of people to feed and we we're getting less and less space and just the efficiencies at, at which that is done. is awesome. Spirulina, anything pioneering spirulina, algae protein, nothing, no formal announcement here, but we're definitely looking into a lot of deep sea minerals and things and algae protein as well. But algae is another ingredient and I guess material too that's extremely sustainable, extremely healthy. It's based it's a superfood and a supply chain aid all in one. It's mm-hmm. incredible. So I love that. And then more on the branding side too. I'm a big fan of Pangaya. One of our team members showed us Pangaya and I love how blunt they are. Now that they're a little bit more on the branding side versus that of like vertical farming and things, but their style is like a super vibrant color. It, it's a clothing line basically or yeah. But uh, one product sold is one mangrove tree planted is, I believe, one one ton of carbon stored. And their style, though, I think is really fitting with where things are going, which is their main aesthetic is just a paragraph on what that actual product does for the environment and how they created that with the supply chain. And I think that kind of transparency, that's almost like a subversion of it, but it's still transparent all the same. And uh, I think it's super cool. So check them out. P-A-N-G. AIA. Um, I'm a big fan. They just did a collab with Jaden, I think, right? That's right. That's right. I yeah. think so. Yeah. And Pharrell too, I believe, or they, they at least had him on. Yeah. They're super cool. Yo, I got to also say, I got to echo the algae sentiment as well. I've been looking at an opportunity here. I saw this project out of Rhode Island School of Design and is this master student created what I thought was a piece of art. But it was actually uh, 
pretty small algae farm that's specifically designed to be hanged in your home like a masterpiece. And the intent of the project um, is to not only illustrate some of the benefits of integrating algae into your life, right? Like it's a, it cleans and filters the air that we breathe. It's a one, like you said, it's a superfood, but at a broader level, um, exploring this notion of functional art, instead of having something that's still and doesn't offer anything outside of aesthetics into the spaces that you occupy, how can you start giving these things more function? I'll send the project to you guys. It is. I was just about to say, what's that cool. called again? That's... It's called the the coral. That is so dope. Yeah. Um, it's an guy... art installation. So if you look it up, if you guys are by your computer, so the coral, mm-hmm. and then if you type in, it should probably come up. Yeah. So it's probably the so R so the coral and then R S R I S D. Check that thing out. And it's a V1, but regardless of how it looks today, it speaks to the promise of algae specifically, but then just zooming out. What are all the opportunities to replace things that are single utility in nature and then multiplying it? Like another company that we're talking to creates uh, these beautiful window frames that double up as solar charging panels so you would never know that they had this function Um, so anyways that's a framework i've been exploring at length recently if you guys ever want to jam on that man i would love to do that (laughs) yeah Um, dude that sounds that sounds dope we need to connect over some uh, non-alcoholic beverages and and talk about all these cool companies because sustainability tech man it's it's awesome. And, and there, yeah. there's just a new cool company every hour, it seems like, being made. Right? It's doing something that blows my mind. It's- All right, guys. This is the last question of every interview, and it's this notion of the idea graveyard. I think we're, we're probably all the same. We have an, a notes app that's filled with a laundry list of ideas, <laughs> and obviously we'd love to do all of them but we just don't have the time to do, or they're just shitty, but you just, you wrote them down. So my, my question for both of you is what are one of these ideas that you'd love to work on if you had the time to do, but in the meantime are just rotting away in your idea graveyard? You have to give me like <laughs> 10 seconds because I don't, I want to give you a good one because half of the ones in my <laughs> so notes are I'm- shitty. Um, maybe, maybe Nick, I don't know if, if you want to go. Well, I think here, but yeah, that's a really tough one for me too. That's, uh, <laughs> actually, I... it it's funny too. Cause like I listen to this podcast. Uh, if you listen to my first million, if you don't, it is fantastic. It's, it's literally idea jams with some of the most prolific entrepreneurs and they just riff on eight to ten ideas every episode. It's super cool. But wait, what's that it's called? It's so. It, it's so. It was called My First Million, which is inappropriate as to what the show is about today. But it's it's hosted by Sam Parr, who's the founder and runs the Hustle, and then hmm. Sean Purry, whose company was acquired by Twitch. 
and they actually started the podcast because he was going through the acquisition and was so feisty that he needed to start something that was like pretty low commitment. And I, I'm not kidding. It is indispensable for me now. Like I, I am bummed when they don't come out with a new episode. But it's I, funny because like the thread is you don't want the idea to be too great because you just you have this like glimmer of hope that you'll do it at one day. But you also don't want <laughs> give an idea that's shitty because, oh, this guy just has shitty ideas. It's that <laughs> fine compromise. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I Oh, yeah. No, Corey, go on. You seem to have it. Yeah, yeah, if you don't mind, so I don't want to interject. But so uh, I'll just tell you what I want to, to die doing. Uh, I'll just go <laughs> all the way to the end that if this ends up in, a, you know, in the idea graveyard, I will be turning in my grave. But uh, <laughs> basically, I, I think homes like the, the homes that we're in haven't changed in uh, a very long time. Appliances have uh, we have a microwave oven. We have some, some pretty advanced plumbing, but the home itself hasn't. And, and I want to way down the line because this is going to be extremely resource intensive, create biodomes, residential biodomes, for a few reasons. One, it's been scientifically proven that when humans are around nature, something that we're coming further and further apart from, just that, that's where we're trending. But when humans are closer to nature, we're happier. Also, it, it could it'd be a natural way of cleaning the air. Air quality is getting very bad by 2050. I'll send you a, a few uh, studies, that, a few studies that'll get your existential dread going, but there should be a whole host of lung problems that start popping up. And, and with that, I also think that you could do like triple energy generation. You could get solar energy from the actual outside of this biodome. You could you can geothermal energy and then also photosynthetic energy from the plants within the biodome. So you'd have your own. It would also it'd be like decentralized UBI of sorts, um, because I think that even with today's technology, the amount of energy income that you could drive from that would be substantial. So and for the what? generation that doesn't want to buy a home first home that will actually pay for itself quickly. Like what is a biodome? Like I the, the my I don't know why my first thinking maybe it's cuz we talked about Yeezy earlier but like Kanye's building these apartment complexes out in Wyoming <laughs> that are like that look like that, that have these dome architecture. That, that's how they look like they have these domes as like the roof. Is is that what is a biodome? So it's a completely self-sufficient environment or, or habitat that is not reliant whatsoever on the outside world. Completely. So in theory, you could be in, you could be in Death Valley, one of the hottest places in the world, no arable soil, pretty much, pretty much nothing for you there and be living like you are in the Florida Keys on the inside in your, of your home. And in theory, you'd be able to change the weather and, and, and just the atmosphere, humidity, everything, just like you're able to access a thermostat today. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Is anyone working on this? This is fucking cool. Don't think anyone's working on this in the residential level. I don't want to – that might be ignorant. I don't know. I haven't – I have looked into this a, a fuck ton actually. But <laughs> I, I haven't looked into how many like, companies are – what their true norths are. But uh-huh. the Eden Project, the, the company that's doing a lot of reforestation that, that we're actually partnered with in Madagascar has some have some cool biodomes that are more like museums. But no, and the true north for that is everyone's talking about how we're going to get to Mars, how we're going to get to the moon and build habitats there and bases. But – there's not enough talk about how it's going to actually emulate life on Earth, which is extremely important if we ever plan to live there or else happiness will just degrade to a point where why why is it well, expansion isn't worth it if, if human happiness continue, like dwindles. I know it's a crazy friggin' idea, but that's it. what I want to die doing. Sold. <laughs> when you're looking for checks, hit me up. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Nick, how are you, man? That's a tough act to follow and mine is not going to be <laughs> – 
Mine's not going to be quite as grandiose, although Corey and I have discussed that a lot, the biodomes and yeah, and how that can work. It's an incredibly exciting idea. I'm going to zoom way in. And, and this is actually something I do know someone within our immediate network who is working on this or at least like an iteration of this, but this would be basically allowing... Now, I wouldn't want to make it public infrastructure or like pu- public services because, you know, we all know how that goes, but something decentralized and privatized where it can be extremely accessible, cost effective and super easy to uh, compost. And I, I just think it would encourage so many good things. Yeah, I think it could do a lot quickly, even in especially actually in urban areas. Dude, um, not additionally, mm-hmm. I, I have been thinking about this nonstop. So I live in this big ap- apartment building. In New York City. Yep. And it's great. Every floor has recycling, right, for paper, blah, 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 and trash where you, you dump it in this bag and it, it goes through your traditional waste management workflow. Like why don't right. apartment buildings add one more option for composting? It's so easy, but it's not done. And I think, yes, exactly, exactly. So, I appreciate you saying that. Question for you. How do you see this manifesting? Is this an at uh, an individual unit where I'm going to have just like another trash can per se that can do this? Or does it require a slight infrastructure revamp? Because right now, we I, I don't know if what it's like. I'm sure this is probably like this, the same in Boston, other urban areas. But like mm-hmm. we got these chutes that you just throw the trash yep. bag down. It, it falls. So do you envision maybe creating one more chute where you just toss – all your food, right? No, yeah, yeah, I I, I gotcha. I really, I'm pretty smitten on the idea that it would have to be automated. It would probably have to be like mechanistic too. I don't know if it would be a drone service. I don't know if it would be actually just a household robot that would be doing it and then transporting every night, every week, I don't know, to maybe a larger larger compost in like that locale. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but it would have to be automated. I don't think it shouldn't be like built out manually. It shouldn't be like a part of the home. I think it should be a service. It should be some somehow mechanized and probably involve drones to then transport the smaller bins to a larger one in the same like kind of region. Um, that's yeah. That's super I think, interesting. I think that would make a lot of sense. And then there there would have to be a lot on the back end that's actually making it worthwhile distributing the compost. There would probably right. be like services. Yeah. Yeah. Like how but, do you uh, like? The, the the economics would be tricky, but if there is, if you can some, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually haven't spent enough time thinking about the business model itself. I'm more so thinking, hey, I'm a tenant in this building and I want to compost my food. I want to compost anything that can be composted, but I just can't do that easily. Yeah. And the so, fact that's not accessible in a city as, as forward and as dense and as educated as New York is like crazy to me. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guys, so we're just gonna be we're just gonna be popping up ventures left and right. That's, that's what I'm hearing here. Either that or heavily contributing to this uh, graveyard that you're talking about. <laughs> we'll see. Guys, this has been one of the most fun interviews I've done in a while. I, I would like to roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. 
Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to, to wonder a shameless plug and then hopefully a plea for help. But shameless plug, if you go to our Kickstarter, we got two weeks left. Just type in Impact Snacks and you can pre-order. Yeah, you pre-order our products. You can buy our, our digital products, plant some trees and, and support the mission. And with that, it's not a now thing, but I'm being, we are being very picky with this. We are going to be looking for a creative director in the long term because we have an awesome agency we work with, but where they kind of stick from the seed round to series A point and you can't really bring them on full time. So we want someone that can match their quality. They're awesome, by the way, shout out. They're called Famous Folks, famousfolks.ca. But yeah, creative director is someone <laughs> that we desperately need to bring on in the next eight to 10 months for sure. Nick, anything? Yeah, it's about it. Otherwise, Impact Snacks, Instagram, Impact.Snacks, TikTok, just... If you love the mission, then absolutely feel free to reach out to me whenever. Nick, I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Nick Oliveri. But yeah, yeah, that's really it. You know, we <laughs> like Corey said, maybe a plea for help too. We we need all the help we can get. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, yes. If you're interested, reach out, support, ask questions, uh, say your concerns. We we really love when questions are asked about our supply chain, ingredients, different things. So whatever really appreciate you having us on today this has been super fun yeah really cool thank you guys you guys rock thank you so much for your time and for making my job super easy (laughs) no thank you man really appreciate it shoot me your uh, a good shipping address after this so i can send you some some impact snacks oh man dude don't worry i'm gonna literally i have your kickstarter up right now count me in for these freaking milestones baby I love it. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, man. Hey there. You made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at PeterA11 or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bring you another new episode next Tuesday.